0: Good morning, Minnesota District. How are you this morning? Did you have your coffee or your juice or, in Pastor John's case, your Red Bull? or two or three of them. He's always on a 10. He lives on that on that level all the time. It is such an honor to be with you for the EQUIP conference. Thank you, Superintendent, Pastor Mark Dean, all of your executive leadership staff for entrusting me with this assignment. And thank you for your hospitality. It has been so great till I almost died today in Elizabeth's car in the parking lot while dropping me off. Truth be told, she still had it in drive while I'm trying to get out of the car. She thought she put it in park. I said, Jesus, I'm gonna meet you today. Just kidding. Thank you, Elizabeth. You are gold. You've been amazing. Thank you so much for for serving like Jesus. Super excited to be with you all today and just see what God has in store. I will be with you this afternoon for the 230 session. I'm a local pastor. I also serve in our district, so I know how it is. Sometimes we're like, we're gonna, after lunch, we're gonna hit the road and head out early, and unless there is an emergency, I'm gonna encourage you to be here at 2:30. I believe it's a prophetic word that the Lord gave me for this district specifically. There were inklings of it last night in the message. It's a generational message, it's a message that I hope prompts you and stirs you into action, and I hope it changes the atmosphere and the culture, maybe in our communities, in our district, and your local church, as far as partnering together with the next generation. So I encourage you, make plans to be here. I am super excited about that time. It is such, again, an honor to be with you and such a delight to be able to meet. This is my first time in Minnesota. You might have noticed when you saw a woman walking in, fully clothed with a coat, a scarf, mittens, a toboggan. It is cold here compared to Houston, Texas. I said, they did not prepare me. I have open toe shoes. They're like, "Honey, this is not the summer. You are not in Kansas, Dorothy." But it is the summer still in Houston. We live in a in a all all except one month our summer in Houston. That's all we know. It's always 80 to 100 degrees all the time. But while it is my first time here, it has been such a delight to be around familiar faces. I got to give a shout out on the behalf of my husband, myself, and our church to the Petrolles, church planners here in your district. God used them at a CMN conference a few years back to seed into our church in a very real need we had with a roof that was coming down uh, during after experiencing a flood. And I thank God for them. They, they sowed a seed, a very generous seed, without even knowing us. But their seed caused a ripple effect of generosity in our church that elevated the faith of those that were in our church family, and the need was met. Thank you to Jesus. So we will always be indebted to the Petrales. Yes, a round of applause for the body of Christ. It's also been a delight to minister alongside ministry colleagues, dear friends of mine, Pastor Sean more Pastor Krista. I met Pastor Sean yesterday, but Pastor Krista and I go back a few years, and it's just a delight to sit under her ministry for an evening with all of you. And I want to give a huge shout out to Pastor James Leonard, your under-40 executive presbyter. Had a phenomenal time, dialogue, dinner with some amazing U40 lead pastors. If you were there, give me a wave. Let me just know you're awake this morning. Such a phenomenal conversation. Thank you guys so much for that time together and I just want to let you know James Leonard has represented you well he serves on what I call it's not an official title so please don't write the general council it's what I call the national U40 team but it's every under 40 executive presbyter general presbyter and under 40 representative representing their district or their network he sits on that committee or that team if you will and so every quarter we are getting updates from the executive presbytery and he has represented you well and he's leading well so thank you so much Pastor James for being a part of that team before I begin, yes, before I begin, I want to introduce you to my family. They were not able to join me on this occasion, but my family, Pastor Jay Alfaro, uh, there we are from Houston, Texas, and he was, uh, we are lead pastors, as they said, or pastors of, senior pastors of the church there, the tabernacle. We call it tab church in-house. Yes, Pastor John, you have officially been adopted as an in-house. You can say tab church from now on. And our two miracle children uh, who were given to us 15 years in the waiting. My husband and I have been married for 20 years. I know I don't look a day over 20. (laughs) But 15 years, I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility. Does anybody know what that is? I don't either. It's still unexplained. And so, yeah, you can laugh. It's okay. This is five years ago. Uh, So some years early on, we were diagnosed with that. Didn't know, didn't have any record of that or history of that in our family history or medical history. But the the Lord had us in a waiting season. We didn't understand why, but we were literally in a waiting room when it came to that. We tried every door. We tried to bust those doors open of adoption, fostering, and I kid you not, every door was closed in our face. And literally, it was God saying, you're gonna stay in the waiting room until I open the door that I have for you. 10 years into our marriage, uh, we miraculous, con- miraculously conceived, and we were so excited to have that child. It was gonna be a miracle child, but on Christmas day, it ended up in the uh, ER room, the emergency room, giving birth to a baby that we lost there uh, on Christmas day of 2013. And after that time, it was a season of grief while we were leading, while we were ministering and pastoring, praying for miracles of other people, yet leading while bleeding very much so internally. And so we just held on, held on there in that waiting room. And four years later, 2018 on a good Friday. How redemptive is God? J. David Alfaro III was born and then three years later because God can, God sends us the princess of the house who thinks she's the queen but she's only two so simmer down girl. Jalissa J. L. Totally amazing. They are the joys of our life, our first ministry and we will forever be grateful to God for entrusting us with getting to be parents to these two amazing children. We love our babies. I also bring you greetings from our general superintendent, Pastor Doug Clay, our executive presbytery. One of the highlights of our times together when we meet almost every two, three months is praying and interceding for the local church. And let me tell you, it's not like if you're praying over a cold pizza or a hamburger, we will intercede, take moments to put the business aside and intercede for the local church. We're praying for you. We're praying for every local pastor, every local lay leader, every ministry worker. We're praying for the churches in the community to be a beacon of light in the darkness of whatever their community might be going through. And I love that. And let me tell you, our our superintendent, Pastor's Heart, his vision is to see a healthy church in every community marked by spiritual and numerical growth. And I want to congratulate you because you are part of that. By virtue of being here, by virtue of being a pastor, a lay leader, a women's ministries director, missions, Missions pastor media pastor whether you are on a platform every Sunday or whether you're working behind the scenes You are part of bringing health and life to whatever atmosphere is in your community whether your church is a, a members a 20 members or a 2,000 member church God is working through you to fulfill his great commission in this world and thank you Thank you that despite the season we're coming out of so ironic, but I don't know if you do this, but we 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 timeline and reference everything according to uh, an event that had recently happened. When you have conversations with people, do you ever find yourself saying, oh, it was pre-COVID or post-COVID? Oh, that was before the pandemic or after the pandemic. That is a clear marker that has defined or wanted to define the church. But thank you for, for being faithful to your call, even despite the challenges. You know, nobody gave us a manual of how to pastor in a pandemic. And in fact, now that we're in this point of transition, what I believe the church is in a moment of transition, we're in the middle of being the pre and the post. We're not the church we used to be. Our ministry may not look like the way it did pre or post, pre-pandemic, but let me tell you, we are still not to the fullness of what God has for us. There is still more. If we are trying to measure our future by our past successes, then we are missing it. God is doing a new thing in his church and COVID, a pandemic, political upheaval, our cultural climate, nothing can stop what God has in store for his church. So as the church finds itself in the middle, learning how to minister to a post-coming-out pandemic church, maybe even personally in your church, in your family, in your marriage, you find yourself in Transition you're in the middle of a season you're not what you know God promised you but you're not where you used to be and sometimes let me tell you did you know that people are most tempted to quit when they're in the middle of transition when they're in the middle of the journey when I'm far enough that I can't go back but I'm not close enough that I'm leaping for joy Right in the middle. And this is currently a phenomenon in the corporate world known as quiet quitting. Quiet quitting is a trend where workers will do the minimum. They have to do, do enough just to get by. They they won't go the extra mile to collaborate with their team or their coworkers. They won't go the extra mile to satisfy customer needs. They'll do just enough to get by. And some believe that the pandemic fostered or helped foster this mindset in the workforce across America. Sadly, according to Gallup polls, quiet quitters make up of at least 50% of the US workforce. Imagine that if we were to bring that into the church world or context, could you imagine pastors and leaders if 50% of your volunteers, 50% of the ministry leaders and teams showed up 50% of the time? Or maybe they're there physically, but their heart, only 50% of them are there with all their heart. And this is not only happening in the workforce today, but I believe it's an obstacle or a battle that the people of God encountered in the Old Testament as well. I'm going to invite you to join me in Psalms 137. Psalm chapter 137. Put your seatbelt on because we're about to read something that is probably not something you would do for an opening session, especially when when we get to the last verse. But if you didn't have your coffee or Red Bull, this will wake you up. Psalm 137, 1 through nine, it says like this, we sat down and cried by the rivers of Babylon. When we remembered Zion, there upon the willow trees, we put up or we hung our harps. For those who held us there made us sing. And those who made it hard for us asked for joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget what it's able to do. May my tongue hold to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not honor Jerusalem above my highest joy. O Lord, remember what the sons of Edom did on the day Jerusalem fell. Knock it down, they said. Knock it down to the ground. O oh, daughter of Babylon you who will be destroyed how honored will be the one who pays you back for what you've done to us how honored will be the one who catches your children and throws them against the rock here we find the people of God reflecting on a very painful season in their life biblical scholars situate this psalm some say that it's situated and it occurred after the fall of Jerusalem while they were exiles in Babylon, Why other scholars believe that it was positioned and written after their freedom from exile in Babylon and their return to Jerusalem. Regardless of when it was written, the song is poetic in nature, but can we be honest, it's very raw, it's unfiltered, it's vulnerable, it's transparent. Derek Kidner describes it this way, every line of it's alive with pain, whose intensity grows with each strofe to the appalling climax. This is a picture of defeat. This is a picture of the people of God hanging up their harps. What was the harp? The very object that represented the thing that they were created to do, which was to worship. They are now hanging up that object. They are hanging up that assignment. They are putting it away and out of reach because of the anguish of their soul. I find it interesting that this is a psalm. We know psalms to be songs songs of worship but it is so ironic that this while it is a psalm is void of worship there are a lot of words but there is no worship in this psalm the tone is bitter As they speak of their captors and they say, how can you demand songs from us? How can you just snap your fingers and ask us to sing? Do you not know what we've just gone through? Do you not know what happened to our family, how we were displaced? They are so discouraged that rather than cry out to God or allow their need and situation to position them to worship God, it's just much easier to hang up their heart. see how this season and this process disturbs their peace and silences their song what do we do leaders what do we do when the processes of life do more than just silence our worship but when it tempts us to quietly quit and take spiritual shortcuts spiritual shortcuts with God Spiritual shortcuts in our family, marriage, spiritual shortcuts in our ministry, or even with our pastors or leadership. I'm here, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm here, but my heart's not here. Let me remind you, ministry leader, you were called by God to lead people to Jesus, to disciple them and equip them for the purposes of God, the ones that he created them for long before the foundations of the earth. And the only way that we can achieve that purpose is going beyond just what we do and what we say. I submit to you that ministry is more than just what we're saying behind a pulpit or a stand or with an audience in front of us. I submit to you that the greatest ministry we have is how we serve, is the attitude we have. It's how we're doing. Are we doing it with all our heart? Are we doing it with excellence? We can all give our church or our ministry team, our Sunday school class, that girls ministries group, we can all give them three to four steps in a lesson that we found somewhere else or we found on a podcast or somebody else preach and we're just going to recycle it a little and put our little touch. We can all give people stale bread, but stale bread does not nourish the body of Christ. They need some fresh bread. They need manna. They need it from people who know what it's like to be in the waiting room, people who know how to sing on the mountain and the valley top, people who will not just say, you need to climb, you need to sing, you need to worship, but will say, come on baby, I'm climbing with you, I'm waiting too, but I'm not giving up till God fulfills his promise in me. Yeah. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul gives us a remedy for quiet quitting. Look at Romans 12:11. The Apostle Paul admonishes us to keep our zeal. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. The new IRV version says, never let the fire in your heart go out, keep it alive. The message translation says, don't burn out. Can I get an amen? Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. The Apostle Paul uses the word zeal, which in the Greek is translated fire. In other words, we're not just serving out of the smoke of yesterday's revival. I need fresh fire every day. I need it in the morning. And I don't need it just to lead a church. I need it for my own life as well. Fresh fire on the altar. Fire has great significance in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it represented God's power, God's presence, God's holiness, God's protection. If we look at these these examples of fire, it's not just showing us the power of God, but it also gives us the correlation between fire and the life of the believer. In the Old Testament, we see how fire was a symbol where God used a burning bush to get Moses' attention and call him to be the deliverer of the people. Later on, he used fire to lead his people through the desert so they could find their way, gave them direction. Then we see in the life of Elijah how God uses fire to demonstrate his his power before the false prophets. And then if we move into the book of Leviticus, we see how fire was an important element in the temple of God. God commanded Moses in Leviticus 6.12, the fire on the altar shall not go out but shall continue to burn. And in the New Testament, the fire doesn't end. Nobody closes it. Nobody turns it off. On the day of Pentecost, the way God decides to birth the church is through a manifestation of fire. The same fire that used to represent go before the people of God in great exploits and represent his persistent presence was now a fire that rested on their heads and tongues of fire. It was now a fire that got on the inside of them. And they were were baptized with the Holy Spirit so they could advance the gospel. So what is Paul telling us? In the Old Testament, you needed a living animal to offer a sacrifice to keep the fire going. But Paul says in Romans 12, 11, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Offer your body. Offer your hands. Offer your voice, pastor. Offer your feet. Offer your mind. Offer it as a living sacrifice, pleasing, holy to God. Fire comes when we offer ourselves to God. I'm here, God. I'm all in, God. Romans 12, 11 through 12. How do we do this? Paul gives us three principles. This is what I'm going to leave you with. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And here, here are the three points. This is how we do it be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction. Don't check out on me, even though we're going to talk about patience. Be faithful in prayer. See, how do we develop spiritual grit when we're in seasons that tempt us to quit? First of all, Paul says, be joyful in hope. Hope is not something that I'm touching. It's not something tangible. Hope is an abstract concept miles in front of me. I can see it. But I can't fill it with my five senses. Right. Be joyful in hope. A few months ago, our next-gen pastor, she's our children's pastor. She came to my husband and I and was sharing that one of the stories and testimonies that had recently happened with one of her students. She was teaching her students, elementary students, that they were going through the Bible, reading the story of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. And they're at the point in the story where Moses and the people of God are standing before the Red Sea and the Red Sea is completely shut and closed and Pharaoh and his chariots are closing in on behind, from behind. And in that moment, before she can even proceed to say what the next sentence is going to be, one of her young students, a young boy, stands up and he goes, Pastor Emmy, wait! Wait! I have a theory. (laughs) Don't you love those students? How many children workers do we have in here, next-gen workers? You are awesome, changing the next generation. I have a theory. He says, if God could speak and the whole world was created, I bet you if he just blew (laughs) on the water, it would open up. She's like, have you read this story before? No. Wow, what a revelation. But you know what I love about this kid? He's an eight-year-old boy, an eight-year-old boy that's been diagnosed with different emotional disorders also tested for autism. A little boy, and I'm speaking to some children's pastor that's got that student in your ministry and you're thinking how, when, let me tell you, God is working. This little boy knows what it's like. In the past few years, he and his family have gone through a series of accidents, significant loss of, of members in their family that passed away. He battling with what he does every single day. There's some Sundays it's a high, some Sundays it's a low for him. But despite that, what ministers to me is this eight-year-old boy, despite his own obstacles he's faced in his life, he is able to stand there and say, I'm gonna let what I know about God shape and inform my response to the obstacle before me. That's what hope is. Hope is saying, I know I can't change it. I know I don't have power, but I know my God does. And because of what I know about him, He's gonna move mountains before me. That's what being joyful in hope is. Sometimes when we're in the middle of the work, in the weight of life, in budgets, in planning, in our events, and getting our lessons ready, when we're right in the middle, all we see is what's right in front of us, and it doesn't feel joyful. Maybe you are going through personal storms. Maybe you're, you're battling with budgets in the church that just, you're like, God, how are we going to make it? We got to pay this mortgage. We promised to do this building campaign, and we don't even got 10, 20% of what We promised and said we'd get. Maybe you're staring and preaching Sunday after Sunday, and there's more empty pews than warm bodies. Maybe you're you're having to work with volunteer turnover in your ministry, and everything's falling on you and a faithful few. Let me tell you, when it doesn't look, when you can't change your context and you can't change your circumstances, you can change your eyes and where you're looking. Notice that Paul's not saying, be joyful in what you're going through now. He says, Be joyful in what you know is coming in the hope of Jesus. Keep your eyes ahead. Hebrews 12 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We're just coming out of Easter season. Do you know before the three days before an empty tomb, there was a bloody cross? Even Jesus walked through the messiness of life. Even Jesus walked through anguish and pain. Why did he do it? Hebrews 12, 2 says, because of the joy that was in front of him. Because on the other side of the blood would be life, eternal life for many. It would be healing for many. It would be salvation of the entire world. Jesus said, I'm not in this place because I want to be a free martyr or I want to play the victim card. I'm doing it. because." me joy for the process I'm in keep your eyes on Jesus somebody needs to know this don't let the process you are in right now take your eyes off of the promise of God set yourself up some of you are setting yourself up for a disappointment but I hear the Spirit of the Lord saying expect a miracle expect a miracle I don't know who that's for but don't set yourself up for disappointment expect a miracle be joyful in hope Number two, the Apostle Paul says, be patient in affliction. I can't even be patient on a good day, God. Now you're asking me to be patient in affliction? The Greek definition of patience here is enduring, bearing bravely, and calmly. Calmly. Okay, Jesus, we got issues right there. Paul, come over here. We got to talk about this. Because I can go through something difficult. But how many are like me? I'm going to go through something difficult, but Lord, everybody's going to know I'm going through something difficult. (laughs) My husband's going to know. The church is going to know. The board's going to know. My friends are going to, I'm going to put in my rant. Excuse me, sorry, not sorry for this rant. And it's like this forever long post, and we're just like, just keep scrolling. You know what I mean? But patience is when you can do it, not just bravely, but shut your mouth, let God speak, let God defend. You can do it calmly because your trust is in not what you can do to defend yourself, but what you know your Father God can do to defend you. I always tell my kids, the definition of patience is waiting with joy yeah the Lord's still working on them they, they don't get it they don't get it 30 seconds and they're like ah! five-year-old two-year-old all natural all natural we'll pray the devil out of them later it's the father's side inside of them <laughs> father's genes and let me tell you I heard of the Lord some some of my workers some of my servants are waiting because they have to because there's no other option But there is no joy in that waiting. Let me tell you, when we wait, God does his best work. When we wait, God is in the waiting room with us. When we wait, it's not a wasted season. Waiting with joy. This this metaphor takes me back to the pressing and to the story of Jesus when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. I love this story. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's to go to the cross and give himself up for our sins. Gethsemane in the Greek means the place of the olive press. How do you extract oil from an olive? You press it, you crush it. It requires an excruciating process to get just a little oil. So I find it ironic that Jesus is in the place of the olive press before his body is to be crushed for our sins. And notice what happens when he's in the place of crushing and pressing. The, body say, the Bible says his body felt the weight and pressure of this moment and manifested the signs of anguish. Luke twenty-two forty-four says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Yet in his pressing, what did he pray? If you can take this cup from me, do it, God. I would have put the exclamation point there and said, don't pray anymore. It is God's will. Take it away. But what does Jesus pray? But not my will. In other words, God, I may be in this waiting room, and I've been here for five, ten years, two years, nothing's changing, been here 20 years, and I just want to get up the folding chair of that chair and walk out of this room and go do it my way and try to fix it my way. And I hear the word of the Lord for someone. Jesus is saying, I'm right in that waiting room for you, and don't you usurp the process and the promise I have for you. Don't you try to manufacture something like Abraham and Sarah did, who later had an Ishmael. God has called you to have an Isaac, a child of promise, a church of promise, to fulfill everything. Everything he called you to do, go through the pressing and allow oil to come out of you. You see, when Jesus was in the olive press, blood came out because he was the one that would pay for the sins of the world. But when you and I are now in those pressing seasons of affliction, blood does not come out. few years ago or a few years, pardon me, when we started our pastorate in Houston, we walked through a very difficult season. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your church. There was a person from the outside that would come in and they would disrupt and distract our services. Sometimes it felt like something very demonic and we had to go to the point that we had to bring in legal counsel. How do we deal with this? What do we put up police? How do we stop this? Nothing ever worked. And we went almost two years in this condition. If you're a lead pastor, you probably feel that pain. Just, oh, this is messing up the ambiance of what we're wanting to do here in God's church. What's going on? And I remember one day I was praying in my prayer room. And I'm asking God. I'm like, God, deal with it. Deal with this person. I'm so tired of this. It's affecting our members. Some are leaving. It's, it's changing the atmosphere. We're trying to bring it to another. What is going on? And I felt the Holy Spirit ever so gently tap me on the shoulder and he said, Do you want me to heal them or do you want me to get rid of them? And it wasn't until the Lord dealt with the reality of what was in my heart about that person in that situation, then breakthrough came over that person's life. You see, many times we are in that waiting room, we're in that olive press of ministry. And we're tired and we're weary, and our prayer is, God, rescue me. And God's saying, I need you to change your prayer. Can you pray, refine me while I'm here? Some of us are saying, deliver me. Deliver me of those people, of that person, of the person in the community that's just put wall and obstacle after obstacle around our church. All of us pray, deliver, deliver. And God's saying, can you let me develop you through it? Can we change the way we pray so that God can build that patience in us? Be patient in affliction. Lastly, be constant in prayer. Prayer in the Greek refers to a specific place. This is the definition in the Greek of prayer in this context. Be faithful in frequenting the place. Continue in that place. Persevere in that place. Wait in that place. One scholar defines it as prayer is going in. And coming out going in and coming out in other words it's consistency I keep going to the place of his presence I go in and I get prepared and then I come out and I serve and then I go in again and I get prepared and then I come out and I serve and I remember God teaching me about what it was to frequent the place one Sunday morning when I lost my keys I'm lying. Forgive me, Lord. No lightning from heaven. My husband's truck keys. Do you feel my pain? Yes. Yes. Someone's here. Someone's been there or the Lord delivered you. Mighty woman of God. My husband had taken the men of our church to a men's camp with our district that weekend. So I had his truck. I was using his truck only because it's a lot better than my car. So I we get ready getting the kids ready all our 20 bags lined up the door can any of the moms relate got everything ready kids ready I'm ready where's the keys so I start to look for the keys can't find the keys 10 minutes turns into 15 minutes I turn every one of those 20 bags upside down where are the keys where are the keys my purse upside down everything cannot find the keys 15 minutes turns to 30 minutes I'm like we're going to be late I need to find those keys finally I say you know what I just got to go in my car. We'll deal with this later. J. David, please pray because mommy may not come home with you later today. (laughs) So we get into my car and as we're sitting there, the spiritual mama I am, I tell my son, baby, can you please say a prayer and ask God to help mommy find those keys? Because if not, you're not going to have a mama very long. (laughs) And as I'm trying to, I'm putting the key of my car into the ignition, turning it. My son prays a simple prayer. Mommy, Hel- or da- or Jesus, help mommy find the keys so daddy won't kill her. No, I'm just kidding. That was an ad lib. <laughs> that was an ad lib. The moment he prays that, I get this feeling. I'm not OCD. I've never had that before. But I had this feeling like, you didn't lock the door of the house. And I'm thinking, that's crazy. I always lock the door of the house. But I couldn't, I couldn't shake this feeling. So I said, oh, now his car is going to get taken and robbed. And our house is well after church. I'm the- this is it. This is the end for me. So I get out of the car, I go towards the front door to ensure that I lock the door, and as I'm walking to the front door, there on the outside window ledge of our house beside the door are my husband's keys. (laughs) Let me tell you, prayer did not make the keys magically appear there, but prayer aligned my steps to where the keys were that's what prayer does prayer doesn't magically make things happen prayer allows our will to be aligned with his will when we keep going in and we keep coming out i love isaiah 40 31 it says those that wait upon the lord will renew their strength they will lift up their wings like eagles they will run and not grow weary they will walk and not faint the hebrew word for wait the definition i find it interesting when we think of waiting we think this is waiting Get me a chair, let me sit down, I'm gonna do nothing. But the definition of wait here has nothing to do with ceasing activity. It has to do with silencing the noise. So why do we as leaders keep going in and keep going out to the presence of God? Why do we have to frequent that place? Not so much because of the obstacles around us, but because of the chatter in our head that we need his will, his plan, his truth to calm down every time we go into that room. Align my thoughts, God, with your thoughts over my ministry, over my marriage, over my church, over the kids and the youth and the adults that you've got in front of me every week. God, align my thoughts to your thoughts and your plans for them. Strength comes in our faithful obedience, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Returning to Psalm 137, you know, before the people of God found themselves in exile, even before they were, found themselves hanging up their harps, did you know that God had already prophesied that to them through the prophet Isaiah? He gave them doom and gloom, but he also gave them the promise of a Messiah that would come to redeem and deliver them. Look at Isaiah 55, 12 through 13. I'm going to end with this. Isaiah 55, 12 through 13. This was before the quiet quitting because God himself knew this is what you're going to be tempted to do. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. You know, this prophecy was reminding God's people, it's not over. Your affliction will not be the end. Your hanging up the harp will not be the end of your ministry or my plan and purpose for your life. God was reminding the people that there would be a time when they would come out of exile and they would return with joy and peace. It's metaphorical. I'm an English literature major. I have a master's in English, my PhDs in rhetoric that has to do with public speaking, literature, composition, speech, all of that. So I, I look and read the Bible as a literary analytic. And this is a metaphor. What is God saying to the people? The painful seasons that you've walked through, the thorny seasons, the seasons that wanted to dim the fire of God inside of you and tempt you to quietly quit. He says, right there is where I'm going to breathe new life. And I'm going to give you new strength and new joy and new hope. And I'm going to give you peace where you have lacked peace in your place of assignment. The thorny seasons will be replaced and be a source of worship. I don't know what season you find yourself in. Maybe you're in a high in your ministry right now and everything is going great. But maybe... There is a season or area of your life that you feel is in transition. It's in the middle. And nobody knows, maybe not even your spouse, your leadership, your pastors, your board, but inside of you, there have been days that you've had that resignation letter ready. You've had the speech prepared in your mind of exactly how you would say it. And the Lord says today, it's not over. You will not quietly quit, but you will grow, prosper, and see the fulfillment of God's word over your life and ministry in this season. I invite you to stand with me. I felt the Lord say, there's some that are wrestling with me about my plan. There are some that are in the process and they're so angry with the process. Cause it's not fair it doesn't make sense this isn't what i signed up for god last time i heard it we were called to deny ourselves pick up our cross and follow him and we don't get to choose the places we follow him in and i i don't know but i feel the lord brought me all the way from texas maybe even for just one person to say don't hang up your harp don't hang up your harp The very thing that God has called and designed you for, the very thing that was spoken over you, that promise that he's called you and your church and your family for, don't Hang up your heart. It would be easier to quit. But right now, I feel the Holy Spirit wants to build some spiritual grit in each and every one of us. If that's you this morning, you just say, you know what? I feel God speaking to me. I need to be joyful in hope. I need to be patient in my affliction. I need to be constant in prayer. And God, I hear you speaking today. And I'm going to respond, not according to what I'm living or what I'm going through, but I'm going to respond based on who I know you are. I want you to lift your hands right now where you are.